Good morning. I will be reading from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus concludes today's reading. One of our, our pastor in trading just said under his breath on the front row, good luck. <laughs> Oh, Josh, do you have an idea what these sons of God are and what they're doing with the daughters of man? You will in 40 minutes. I have been praying that all week, though. Praying that all week. You know, church, before I pray and begin to preach, I want to remind you that part of what I try to do, part of what we're trying to do in the way we preach God's Word on Sunday is, is teach you how to read your Bibles. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time studying in preparation to preach. But there's nothing in here that is uniquely available to me that's not completely available to you. I, I don't get a weekly download email from God. Hello, Matthew. This is the Holy Spirit. I heard you're called to preach this Sunday, so I just wanted to give you some unique insight I don't get that. There are weeks I think I'd pay big bucks for that. But I want to encourage you that part of the reason we preach through, in, in many cases, in most cases, um, books of the Bible, front to back, verse by verse, is so that we don't avoid the hard parts. Or the confusing parts, or the parts you hear Dwayne read and think, say what? Because here's the reality. When you're reading your Bible, guess what you come across? Hard parts and confusing parts that don't make sense. And if we skip them on Sunday, then I'm teaching you to skip them during the week. And we don't want to skip when God speaks. We don't want to hit fast forward because we don't like something or because it's hard. We may not fully understand it, but guess what? If God says it, he's got something good for us in it. Do you believe that? Because of who he is. I'm grateful that the most important things in Scripture, the most important things of our faith, are crystal clear. There's some things that are less clear. We're going to talk about some of them this morning. But even in things that are on the surface are less clear, places where different people who love God 
trust Christ, can have a different interpretation. If we focus on the big picture, God will still speak to us. So let's pray and ask for his help to do that. Lord, I pray right now that you would do what you are always faithful to do, and you would speak to our ears and to our hearts that we could do what you say to us in Matthew 7, that we could hear your word and do your word, and in so doing, build our house, the house of our life, on the rock of your word, ultimately the rock of the word made flesh, the word of Christ. I pray for your help now, Lord. I pray that the main things would remain the main things and that we would not listen today and I would not speak today to merely satisfy curiosity, but that you would speak today and I would join my brothers and sisters in listening today that your word would take root in our hearts and we would love you more and know you better and repent of our sin and follow you with all our heart. That's what we want, and I pray you would do that again. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have read William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies? Hands up. Yeah, okay, good, good, we can work with this. If you're not familiar with the novel, uh, it's, it's really a classic. It's, it's a rather disturbing allegory of the human condition. Uh, that may not be your memory of it. You may be thinking, that was that book I had to read in English because Miss Stelenso said it was amazing, and I never got a lick of it. Praise God for Sparknotes. But if you don't remember, the basic idea is that it's an allegory of the human condition. It's a pretend story meant to highlight something true about the real story. And the setup is simple. you got a plane carrying a group of British boys that gets shot down over a small island, leaving them to fend for themselves. And their fight for civilized survival starts off uh, well enough. Starts off. But it soon deteriorates into conflict and savagery and death. And the fear quotient, as you keep following the chapters, is, is palpable. Um, especially once the boys decide that on this island dwells a beast, who they simply call the beast. And a few of the boys form a, a party of violent hunters at one point, and after killing a pig, they impale its head on a stick as, as an offering of sorts, a gift of sorts, to this beast. And at the end of chapter 8, we find a boy named Simon alone in the jungle, looking at this head, transfixed by the sight of the dripping blood and now swarming with flies. And Simon begins to hallucinate and, and hears this pig's head, the Lord of the Flies, talking to him. This is what he hears. What are you doing out here all alone? Aren't you afraid of me? Simon shook. There isn't anyone to help you. Only me. And I'm the beast. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill, said the head. For a moment or two, the forest and 
All the other dimly appreciated places echoed with a parody of laughter. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's no go, why things are the way they are. The laughter shivered again. Come now, said the Lord of the flies. Get back to the others and and we'll forget the whole thing. You know perfectly well you'll only meet me down there. So don't try to escape. That's probably my favorite quote in the whole book. And the reason, friends, is that the essential message of Golding's book is that man, you and I, are not naturally inclined toward good. We're naturally inclined toward evil. Absent the the moral restraints of civilization, we, we deteriorate, we spiral into increasing wickedness and corruption. And it's not because of the circumstances outside of us or around us. It is, as Golding not so subtly suggests, because of something inside of us. That's true. And that something is what the Bible calls sin. It starts in Genesis 3. We were there a few weeks ago, where instead of worshiping God by submitting to God, we tried to become God by disobeying God. And it grew exponentially in chapter 4, and it, it reaches, the wickedness of man re- reaches a fever pitch by the time you get to chapter 6. And chapter 6, verse 5, as Dwayne already read, has one of the most severe indictments of the wickedness of man in the entire Bible. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, Pastor, that is not what I came here on Sunday morning looking to be told. (laughs) It's not what we naturally come to church on Sunday wanting to hear. We want God to make us comfortable. You know what God wants to do? He wants to make us humble. We want God to give us everything we need. God loves us enough to rewire our needs. We want God to say, it's all good. God loves us enough to tell us that only he is good. And we want God to say, whatever you're doing is okay. But what God actually loves us enough to say is this. I lived and died and rose from the grave for you because you are not okay. You need a savior. I am your savior. So turn from your sin and follow me. As I mentioned, there are a lot of things in these eight verses that are really difficult to interpret. And I'll be the first to say that I don't completely understand everything, but, but I'm convinced the big picture of these first eight verses of chapter 6 is very clear. And I would summarize it this way, friends. The sovereign judgment of God on the exceeding wickedness of man leaves us with no hope, without hope, apart from grace. That's the point. 
that the sovereign judgment of God, it's a sovereign judgment, we'll talk about that, on the exceeding wickedness of man leaves us with no hope, without hope, apart from grace. And that's really important to understand. It's really important to linger and carefully consider the the nature of sin and our need for salvation for this singular reason, okay? Please hear me on this point. It's important because you will never understand the glory of Christ if you do not understand the depravity of sin. So the word of God is going to govern this preacher today, as it must always, in speaking much about the depravity of man. But I'm going to do that, and the Word does that, ultimately, so we can savor and appreciate the glory of Christ. Does that make sense? So let's not rush this part just because it doesn't feel good, because if we rush it, we won't see his glory. So where God slows down and says, I want to have an honest conversation with you about the sin inside of you. Let's sit down and let him talk to us. These verses help us understand that by making two foundational points about the biblical doctrine of sin. And the first is this, church. Point number one, the wickedness of man is subject to the authority of God. Look at the beginning of chapter 6. Where do we see this? I think this really comes out in the first four verses. Chapter 6 begins innocently enough. Innocently enough. And man appears to be doing what what God commanded him to do, what God commanded us to do. Back in Genesis 1.28, what was that? To be fruitful and multiply. God told us to do that. So what do we read? When man began to multiply, that seems innocent enough, good enough, on the face of the land, And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Now, now I alluded to this earlier. There are a lot of different takes on the identity of these sons of God. So, So some say that these are men in the line of Seth from Genesis 5. Some say they are angels. And more recently, some have tried to argue that they are human princes or rulers, these sons of God. Bottom line, I find a second interpretation that the sons of God are angels most persuasive, and I want to tell you why. Three reasons. First, the handful of times that that Hebrew phrase, sons of God, appears in the rest of the Old Testament, all of which are in the books of Psalms and Proverbs. In those places, every time that you find that phrase, the context clearly identifies the sons of God as members of the heavenly court. Every time. So for example, in Job 38, the sons of God are the angels who rejoiced when God created the stars. Or in Psalm 29, that the sons of God are are the heavenly beings that that David, King David, exhorts and says, Ascribe glory and might to the Lord, O heavenly beings. It's the same phrase. So it's used that way in reference to angels in the rest of the Bible. That's, That's really important. That's helpful here. Second, 
identifying the sons of God in Genesis 6 as angels seems to agree with the New Testament. And the way it describes rebellious angels or fallen angels in Jude verses 6 and 7. Listen, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, notice that, and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Look at that verse. That word likewise and the comparison between what the fallen angels have done and what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah strongly suggest that the original sin of fallen angels in some way was sexual in nature. Third, why are these sons of God angels? The entire context of verses 1 to 8 is one of increasing corruption indicating that the sons of God are not doing something good. They're doing something evil. Listen, if the sons of God was another way of just describing male human beings, then what they're doing here on face value, there's nothing wrong with it. Because God told men and women to multiply, bear children, and fill the earth. He created marriage. They're taking wives to themselves. But the whole context inclines us to look here for something's not right. Something's wrong. The words verse 2 uses to describe what these sons of God are doing are the exact words Genesis 3-5 uses to describe Eve's sin in the garden. Pay attention to that. What did Eve do? Eve saw that the forbidden fruit looked good and took it. Saul, good, took. Look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men looked good, attractive. It's the same Hebrew word. And took them. I I don't think that parallels an accident, friends. What, What the angelic sons of God are doing is not Right, it's horribly wrong. And if you look at verse 4, that verse clarifies the issue. The sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. What, what is that? That is a perversion of God's original mandate for his creatures to reproduce according to their kinds. And whether the fallen angels use their, their own bodies... Uh, to participate in some sort of illicit union with the daughters of man, or possess the body of another man like demons in the New Testament, we we don't know. We, We don't know all the physical dynamics here. Genesis doesn't tell us. What we know is there's a terrible sexual perversion in view here. We want to know, how'd they do that? How did that go down? That's not the main thing God wants us to The main thing God wants us to know, to see, is the spiritual rebellion underlying their illicit union. So look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. The consequence God immediately brings to bear on the heels of the sin in verse 2 
is a clue to the motive behind the sin. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Full stop. Think with me about this. What, what motivated the sin of Eve in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3? She really liked apples? <laughs> no. She wanted to be like God. Like God. I want to be infinite. I want to be immortal. I want to create life for myself. I don't want to need to receive it from him. I will make myself God. What is the immediate limitation God issues here on the human lifespan? Suggest that the daughters of man are trying to do again in Genesis 6. They're trying to be immortal. Having lost access to the tree of life in the garden, the eternal life that comes through relationship with God, they're now trying to, to grasp eternal life for themselves, extracting it from the demonic realm of spiritual darkness through sexual rites. Now, why in the world? Is that sin, that, that sexual perversion, referenced in Genesis 6 as a case study for the increasing wickedness of man in the earth? Why would that example be relevant to the original recipients of this book, who, by the way, were not us, it was the people of Israel, right? Waiting to enter the promised land. Why, why is that example of sin relevant to them? Well, I think it's because it was one of the unique temptations they faced as they were preparing to enter the promised land. Uh, listen to, to Gordon Wenham on this point. Historical insight is helpful here. Intercourse with the divine was regularly sought in the fertility cults of Canaan and the sacred marriage rites of Mesopotamia. I mean, not to be graphic, but what they would do is they would go and sleep with a prostitute in a pagan temple in the hope of receiving through that union something of life eternal from God. Through such procedures, man sought to achieve enhanced earthly life and even eternal life. That's what they were walking into. Friends, I think we do the exact same thing that Israel was tempted to do when, when we look to sexual activity and sexual experiences to give us a life instead of looking to God for life. And by the way, you can keep right on doing that even as a married person. Sex is a good gift. It's a good gift, but it will not uphold your life. 
Only God can give you life. Only God can uphold your life. And you, and you will not find life and salvation by running to sex. You will find life and salvation by running to God. Always. Every situation. And, and the connection, if you look at verse 4, the connection in this verse between the Nephilim, or giants, you may see in a footnote in your Bible, and the children, these daughters of man, bore to the sons of God strongly suggest that some of the mighty men of old, the men of renown, these feared warriors that were on the earth were the product of demonic activity. And that too had exceeding spiritual relevance for the people of Israel. Why do I say that? Numbers 13 Verse 32, what's going on? Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. What, where are we, where's God about to take us here? It's a military recon mission. And when these spies get back, the majority gives a bad report. Listen to what they say. The land through which we've gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the devil sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. What's Israel doing? What are the spies doing? Well, they're associating the great warriors in the land of Canaan with the Nephilim, the mighty men of renown in Genesis 6-4. And in the face of that temptation, a temptation to fear that these guys are going to crush us, if we go into the promised land, I don't care what God says, we're going to get our butt kicked. In face of that temptation, what do they need to remember? Why, why is Moses putting this in this book? Why, why is he calling out by name the origin of one of the primary enemies that originally kept Israel out of the promised land? Why is he calling them on the carpet here? Why, why is he saying, Israel, I want to tell you something about where they came from. It's because Moses, in writing this book, wanted Israel to remember the exact same thing that we need to remember, friends. And it's this. It's this. It's the sovereign authority of God over even the strongest demonic powers of darkness. That's it. They, they associated these giants, these feared warriors. They had some sort of link to the divine. You know what God says? What's God say? Hey, Israel. When they showed up, yeah, there was some demonic activity involved. But guess what? I said, hmm, 120 years. Yep. That's it. They're not divine. They are subject to the sovereign authority of God. They're subject that the boundary God sets, this lifespan limitation, it came to pass gradually. If you're thinking, well, Matthew, didn't people after the flood live a couple hundred years? Yes, they did. Well, God's consequences come to pass over time. Don't know a lot of people today, do you, that are living more than 120 years? Why is that? 
Well, that's because we serve a God who is fiercely committed to humbling the pride of man. And who teaches us through the relative brevity of our life that we are not mortal. Not immortal. We're mortal. We're flesh. And we only enjoy life to the degree that God sees fit sustain our life. That's what it means to be a creature. Grasp as we might for immortality, for life apart from God, even through union with powers of darkness, we can never find it because all of our life and all the powers of darkness are subject to the sovereign authority of God. We don't have life in ourselves, friends. We don't get to set the number of our days. God sets the number of your days. He's the sovereign one. His authority is is supreme. And when wicked man seeks immortality apart from God, God stops him in their tracks every time. Every time. He sets a boundary they can't cross. And, And we need to remember that, friends. Why? We need to remember because the powers of darkness and evil often seem to get away with it in this life, right? It's like, where's God? Why is that still going down in Syria? Why why is this still happening in my family? Why does it look like wherever I see evil and wickedness, it's just continuing ad nauseum? Well, in some respects, because it is. And yet God warns us, both warns and comforts us through this verse that the powers of darkness and evil that seem to prosper and find life in sin will not last forever. There's a boundary. And it represents the authority of God. Psalm 73, 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Speaking of the wicked, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The wicked are like a phantom to God, a dream. The the wickedness of man, bottom line, never leads to eternal life because it is subject to the sovereign authority of God. That's point one, okay? Point two, that's the second thing we need to see here. Let's focus on verses five through seven. The wickedness of man isn't just subject to the sovereign authority of God. The wickedness of man is subject to to the judgment of God. Under his authority, therefore subject to his judgment. Why why do I make this point? Well, I make it because you you could conclude, you could draw the conclusion from God's response in verse three that God limits evil or God controls evil, but that somehow his power falls short of bringing it to a decisive end. Like, like God's just a defensive line and, and he's got all these linemen pushing at him and he's just trying to, let's see if I can hold the 120 years, you know? No. No, that's, that's not the case at all. Look at verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If, if you are looking for a one-verse summary of everything the Bible teaches about the doctrine of sin, you've got it. Right there, verse 5. And we want to linger here, okay? 
We, we want to understand what God is revealing in verse 5, what God is asserting in verse 5, how we need to respond to verse 5, okay? So I'm going to make a couple points all about verse 5 that, that help us understand this wickedness of man that we will then see as subject to the judgment of God, okay? Point one, our sin, our wickedness, is always visible. Hey, think about this. Why, why do I say that? Look, look, look at verse five. What's the very beginning say? The Lord knew that the wickedness of man was great. The Lord heard that the wickedness of man was great. The, the Lord found out it was reported to him. He discovered. Now, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. He saw it. Friend, every evil thought that has ever crossed your mind, every evil word you have ever spoken, every wrong thing you have ever done took place before the sight of Almighty God. You may have thought you were all alone. Door locked, roommate gone, family sleeping, computer history deleted. You're not hidden from God. He's watching you. He was listening to you that night. He is paying careful and close attention and observation to you. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And by the way, that doesn't just include the evil that you have done, that includes all the evil that's ever been done to you. That too is exposed and seen. Psalm 10, verse 11 and 14, he, the wicked, says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. But you do see. For you note, Lord, mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. L listen, when other people grievously sin against us, sin against you, what do we, what do you feel like doing? I think it's two things, all right? We feel like either giving them a taste of their own medicine. Oh, yeah, well... Or we feel like jumping online and screaming to the rooftops all the ways we have been sinned against so that the entire universe can affirm the validity of our cause. You know what's missing in both those scenarios? Whether you lash out or you build a fan club, it's the quiet humility and forbearance that comes from knowing God is intimately aware of what they just did to you. God sees. God knows. You, you don't need to put it on Facebook for God to know. And at just the right time, in just the right way, 
their wickedness against you will be repaid. Friends, one of the most important pillars in a Christian understanding of evil is that not one bit of it is ever hidden from the almighty gaze of God. You remember that? It will temper your responses. It will bring humility into your responses. It will grant you a peace in the midst of your pain. Because he knows. And that's a sobering warning if you're sinning and a tremendous comfort when you're being sinned against, okay? Our sin is always visible. Second, eyes back on verse 5. Our sin is primarily internal. Okay, we, we tend to think of evil as a matter of what we do with our hands or, or say with our mouths. We like to think that we're basically good, but we occasionally do bad things. Well, that's not God's perspective. Okay? Evil isn't just something we do. It's first and foremost something that we are. In other words, we sin because we're sinners. We, we don't just do external actions that are wicked. It's our internal desires that are wicked. James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that other people are always doing things wrong to you? No. That your passions are at war within you. Within me. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That that little phrase in the middle of verse 5, the thoughts of the heart is so important, church. It's so important because it reminds us that our our rebellion against God's authority, our, our passion to do life our way instead of God's way, starts at the level of the thoughts of our heart, the desires in my heart. Let me give you an example, okay? And you can pray for me afterward as a result. If I respond to sin or immaturity in the lives of my three boys, one or all of them, with anger, the problem is not simply that I got angry. Okay, the problem is that I love my own comfort and ease more than I love God. So let me explain, okay? If I really loved God, I would recognize their immaturity as a divinely created moment, opportunity for ministry, <laughs> where I can experience the joy of of being used by the Lord to help my boys become all that God has created them to be. I wish I could just like hit play and just sort of shift into that mindset automatically. (laughs) But when I don't love the person of God supremely, I don't cherish the mission of God supremely, let alone give a rip about the purposes or ministry moments of God, and I'll punish my kids, for violating the peace and quiet of the kingdom of Matthew with a few choice words that remind them they had better get back to worshiping at the throne of my personal comfort. I'll take your laughter as a sign that you've been there. Why do I I mention that? Because it illustrates something. My sin, our sin, it's primarily internal. It's an inside thing. It's not something we can, we can clean up with a life coach or a stint in rehab. 
We need God to change our hearts. It's primarily internal. Here's the the last thing verse 5 teaches us about sin. Not just primarily internal, it corrupts every part of us. It corrupts every part of us. All that we are, all that we do is is corrupted by evil. Notice the words in verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now I can hear the objection in your head. Matthew, trust me, I am not as messed up as I could be. (laughs) You're not. You are sitting quietly listening to the preaching of God's word. Why? Because of the common grace of God. Okay, because of his common grace, we're not as evil as we possibly could be. But every part of us has been corrupted by sin. That's what verse 5 is saying. Every intention of the thoughts of our heart, only evil continually. If I was going to illustrate this, I would say sin is like drywall dust. Why do I say that? How many of you have ever remodeled one part of your house? Yeah, okay, well you're tracking. You've done one room, you know what I'm talking about. Drywall dust finds a way to get on everything. So it could be three rooms away, it could be three floors away. Once it gets into the air, it is going to get everywhere. It's going to touch everything. All that we are, what's the point? All that we have, all that we think, all that we desire, it's all been touched, corrupted by sin. Our sin is visible, internal, and it corrupts every part of us. But as a result of that, look at verse 6. It does something even more significant, friends. And this is where we turn from considering the wickedness of man to the judgment of God. Remember the second point, the wickedness of man, that's verse 5, is subject to the judgment of God. That begins to emerge in verse 6. What what does our wickedness do in verse 6? It brings pain to the heart of God. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That that word for grief in verse 6 is used other places in the Bible to describe some of the most intense emotion known to man. It's, It's the word that you find in Genesis 34 to speak of how Dinah's brothers felt when their sister was raped. It's the word Jonathan uses in 1 Samuel 20 when his father Saul tried to kill his best friend. And it's the word King David used in 2 Samuel 19 when he saw some Absalom hanging from a tree, dead. Whenever we sin, what's the point? Whenever we disobey, we're not just disobeying God's law, we're grieving God's heart. We're grieving his heart. He, He weeps over your sin, friend. Not not because he's weak, but because he's good. Because he's just. And mind you, the sorrow in in verse 6 is not the sorrow of regret. God, God is not saying here, man, I never saw this day coming. If I only had known back then how bad things would be today, I would never have created them. Numbers 23, 19 takes that idea on. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? 
Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Translation, Genesis 6-6 does not represent a change in the sovereign will of God for man. It describes a change in the sovereign response of God to man. It's exactly what God promised in Jeremiah 18-9. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. That's not regret. That's a sovereign promise. Bruce Waltke helps us with this. He writes, the unchanging God, think about this, is always pained by sin. Moreover, because he is immutable, he will always change his plans to do good if people persist in their sin. God's change of mind about the human race at the time of the flood is entirely consistent with his unchanging character. People can count on God. Hear that, friend. People can count on God always to reconsider his original intention to do good or evil according to human response. So in verse 3, God exercises his sovereign authority to limit the wickedness of man. In verse 7, look there, Driven by the pain in his heart, he exercises his righteous judgment to bring a decisive end to the wickedness of man. First, he limits it by his sovereign authority, then he ends it by divine judgment. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Think of it this way, friends. Sin always brings pain into God's world because sin always brings pain into God's heart. When you're experiencing the pain of sin. That is a dim reflection of the pain, the grief that God himself is feeling in that very moment. You're not alone. And the Lord makes good on his promise. We'll see this next Sunday. In chapter 7, he destroys every living thing from the face of the earth through a flood. Why? Because he is a just God. He's a just God, friends. And he cannot and he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. This is what makes him God, friends. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And typically we stop there. But God doesn't stop there and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Why do I read that to you? So you can feel good? No. No. I read that to you for this reason. Because I want to plead with you. If you are harboring secret sin right now, if right now you are refusing to turn from what you know is wrong, you're, you're clinging to sin instead of clinging to God, know this, your judgment is certain. 
God will not ignore you. God will not pass over you. God will destroy you. If not in this life, then in the life to come. And so I plead with you, I I implore you, friend, repent before it's too late. That the wickedness of man is subject to the judgment of God. That, That judgment is not an idea. It's not a notion. It's not an idle threat. The judgment of God is as real as the room that you're sitting in right now. And speaking of all who reject his word, who spurn his authority, the Lord says in Psalm 94, 23, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them Wickedness of man is subject to the authority of God. The wickedness of man is subject to the judgment of God. As Alan Ross says, one does not become like God by rebelling against God, and one cannot rebel against God's order and survive. So, so where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Friends, those points leave us without hope, and without God in the world, save for one little thing that I have saved to the very end, as the Lord does. Look at verse 8. Here's the glimmer. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That there is one thing and one thing only that holds out hope to wicked men and women like you and me who are under the authority of a sovereign God and under the righteous judgment of God. You know what that one thing, that only hope is, friend? It is the unmerited favor of God. It's the one thing you've got. You don't have anything else. Only that the unmerited favor of God. And it's not the focus of this passage, which is why it has not been the focus of this sermon. But it shines at the end of this passage and and it makes us eager to discover what God will do for Noah in the next couple chapters. And what God does for Noah in the next couple chapters is a miracle of grace. But you know what's an even bigger miracle of grace? Grace. It's the miracle to which Noah's deliverance points. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ where we don't just hear of the favor of God or read as somebody else experiences the favor of God. We receive the favor of God as a gift from God. Titus 3.3 For we ourselves, like everyone in this passage, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Verse 5 people don't do works of righteousness. But according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or made right with God by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen, the unmerited favor of God in Jesus Christ that he holds out to you is not a universal guarantee. What I just read does not take away all the truth about us that we just saw in Genesis 6. Why not? Because that gospel, that offer of favor of God in Jesus Christ must be received by faith. You have to turn from your sins and trust Jesus. You have to stop trying to create life for yourself and start trusting Jesus to to give you life. And if you do that, friend, if you do that, then, then know this. And if you have done that and you're still doing that today, then there is grace in Christ that is greater than all your sin. And there's a cleansing power in the blood of Christ that is greater than all your sin. And there's an assurance of God's eternal favor in Christ that is greater than all your sin. So allow the certainty of God's judgment to send you running to Jesus. Flee to Christ and and keep on fleeing and fleeing and running and running to Jesus Christ until the day when the sovereign authority of God and the righteous judgment of God ensures that sin and wickedness are no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I... Thank you that you love us enough to get our attention. And to deal honestly and truthfully with us. In the midst of our deception, Lord, we confess to you that we, most days, most times, do not see who we actually are apart from grace. And as a result of that, Lord, we we take your grace for granted. We hear things like, God loves you because of Christ. And we say, well, duh, tell me something new. I know that. Oh, Father, that's wicked. That's wicked presumption. We don't deserve anything good from you. We are, verse 5, But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have held out favor toward us. And I pray as we confess our sin now to you through this song, that instead of trying to create life through sin, including sexual sin, that we would run to you and do what Noah did. And cry out, apart from your favor, Lord, I have no hope. Help us do that now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.